So this year, I thought, I'm going to change it up a little. Instead of talking about the what happened, I want to talk about the philosophy behind it, the why it happened. We're going to talk about why Christmas is so important and why the Bible so clearly talks about Jesus and who he is and what his mission was, what he actually came to the earth to do. So that is what I'm going to be talking about. <clears throat> Excuse me. Before we get to that, though, I wanted to talk about some different forms of communication. So you know that all communication is encapsulated in these different symbols or different letters which form what? words. So all of these forms of communication are ways of bringing a message using words. So the first one is in the 6th to the 5th um, century BC. This is the ancient Sanskrit, and this was the, the first known symbol uh, of, of language, of some kind of words. Uh, and then <clears throat> fast forward all the way to the 1440s, and it was the invention of the printing press, as you can see here. Um, and then in the 1790s, they invented the telegraph, which did, you know, remember what that's called? Morse code. Mm -hmm. Then <clears throat> the very first telephone was invented in March 10th, 1876. Some of you remember that, right? <laughs> Does anybody remember the very first conversation? Anybody? It was Alexander Graham Bell, and he said... Ahoy. <laughs> he was a nautical lad. Uh, <laughs> okay, that was so random. Um, Alexander Graham Bell said, Mr. Watson, come here, I want to see you. That was the very first telephone conversation. Then in the 1890s, the radio was invented by Guglielmo Marconi. You have to say it like in Italian. And then in 1973 was the invention of the... Anybody? Cell phone. Anybody? Can you believe that? 1973. That's the guy. He's the guy. Do you know how much that thing weighed? Four pounds. Four ounces. How much did it cost? A lot. Yeah. Over $1,000 for that. I mean, you'd have like one super ripped bicep from talking on the phone with that one. Sit there and lift weights with that thing. Then... With the, the advent of the telephone came the text message. Anybody know what the first text message was? Don't show it yet. Anybody know the very first text message from phone to phone? Mary. Oh, oh. Security. No. It was Merry Christmas. That was the very first, because it was in December. Uh, let's see, the year was 1992, and it was Neil Papworth texted to Richard Jarvis, and Richard Jarvis didn't text back. And the tradition of not texting back started then. <laughs> there weren't even the three dots. And then in 2004, the Facebook, which was a, a new advent in communication, started by whom? Mark Zuckerberg. Anybody know the name of the other three guys? If you can name it, I will give you $20 right now. Who are the other three? Don't check your phones, no cheating. Just off the top of your head. Eduardo Severin, Dustin Moskowitz, and Chris Hughes, in case you're ever playing Trivial Pursuit or something and you need to know those names. All right, then in 2006, 
the political climate would be forever changed by Twitter. Twitter, 2006, by a guy named Jack Dorsey. Here, just setting up my... Jack Dorsey, there it is. That's the very first tweet. Okay, then in 2000 and, uh, or 2010, I'm sorry, the very first FaceTime message was... Wait, where's the other one? Back it up. There. <laughs> I know you are, but what am I? <laughs> okay, anyway, this was the first text or uh, FaceTime. Steve Jobs and Johnny Ive. So, as you can see, words are very important. It's very, very, very important for us to use words. You cannot know another person unless you communicate with words. True? I mean, you can think you know somebody, like you can see somebody, you can, you can uh, see somebody in the grocery store and you can make some assumptions about who they are based on what they're wearing, what they carry around, um, you know, what they look like, kind of how they act. But until people actually use their words, it's really, really impossible to know them, which is why you know, the ministry that we do in the Philippines, it's so important for us to have uh, some of our materials in Tagalog, which is the language of the Philippines, because when we go into those slums, those little kids, they can't understand anything in English. I mean, maybe a few words, but it's really hard to communicate. And so therefore, it's really hard to break through a barrier and really have an understanding of those, of their, of what they're thinking and what they're like. True? Do you understand what I'm saying? You know, you can, a lot of times, I, I travel a lot um, on airplanes, and you know, you can really tell the difference between the two types of people. There's the types of people on the airplane, and you sit down, and they're like, earphones in, or, you know, the eye thing over their eyes, or they're reading, or they're sleeping, or you pretty much know this person does not want to use words with me. <laughs> they do not want to communicate. And, and consequently, like, you can sit and watch them while they sleep, which is creepy, but you can <laughs> deduce certain things by how they look, but you don't really ever know them until you start using words. We use words as our form of understanding, of getting to know other people. Um, we can miscommunicate. We can say something that can be misinterpreted, of course. Or there could be a lack of communication, which someone makes assumptions based on too little information. Or there can be negative communication. But primarily, the way for us to grow in our intimacy with other people is through communicating through words. And that is why, in the book of John, John, who is considered one of Jesus' best friends... For sure, he is one of the three. And he knew Jesus probably better than anyone else. And he said that Jesus was the word. He didn't use the word truth. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. He didn't say Jesus was the way. He didn't say Jesus was the truth. He didn't say Jesus was the life. He didn't say he was the light. He didn't say he was the savior. He said, in the beginning was the word. That's how he refers to Jesus. So why? What is in a word? Why, why word? Why would he refer to Jesus, the Savior, as the word? The original Greek is hologos, logos, which means word. 
And it says, in the beginning, if you have your Bible here, this is in John chapter 1, starting with verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. You can read about this in the book of Proverbs. Jesus is called wisdom in the book of Proverbs. But Jesus was there at the creation. You can get, we could get really deep into this. We could go really deep in the weeds on this. But today we're really going to stick with, in the beginning was the word. In Genesis chapter 1, the very first book of the Bible, it says over 10 times, God said, and something was created, something was formed, something was, was uh, made. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, let there be land, let there be water, let there be animals, let there be plants, let there all these things. But it says God said, he spoke it into existence. Words are critical. Words are the way that we get to know someone, and words are the only way, really, that we can truly know somebody or something, which is why, I think, that's why John referred to Jesus as the Word. Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, by the mouth all their hosts, by his mouth. John chapter 1, verse 4, it says, In him, in Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Okay, there was a, a prophecy years before, I think it was 700 years before Jesus came to earth, and it talked about him coming to earth. It talked about the people were walking in deep darkness, but then a light shone. That light is Jesus Christ. When he came to the earth, he became the light of the world, and a darkness has not overcome it. No matter what anyone tells you, if anyone tells you, oh, um, you know, the church, is, the church is doomed. If we continue at this, at this level, there will be no such thing as a church. No, Jesus says he is the one who will protect his church, and the gates of hell will never prevail against his bride, his church, the church that he loves, which is... Anybody who believes that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the dead says that's how you can be saved. It's not about denominations or about flavor. It's about what you believe. John 1.9 says the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. You see, the Israelites had been yearning for the return or the, or the coming of their Messiah because they knew their Messiah was going to come and be their Savior. He was going to save them from their sins, which was actually what was spoken about Jesus, that you will name him Jesus because he will save people from their sins. But the people were expecting him to come on a horse or to come on a rocket ship or you know, some radical, dramatic way. But instead, he chose to come as a helpless, vulnerable, tiny, defenseless little baby. Is Selah still in here? Yeah? Can you bring her up here? 
for a second. This is Selah. Sorry, I went out of the light. I'm in the darkness. Darkness has not overcome it. This is Selah. Say hi. She's like, I don't talk yet. She's looking for something to put in her mouth. How much defense would she have against somebody who had come to attack her? Think about this. The Lord of the universe, the, the, the one who created, right now there are over 80 billion galaxies just that they know of. You know, science does point to the fact that Jesus Christ is God. Sci- science doesn't dispel religion. Science supports it. Well, God anyway. But look at her now. Why in the world would the almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing, supreme, preeminent God choose to come down in a form like this? It does not make sense, does it? You're looking at my sparkles, huh? Why would God choose to put off all of his power, all of his majesty, and become a little tiny baby? It doesn't make sense. And that's why it says he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Nobody nobody thought... I mean, other than the shepherds who had an angelic visit or the wise men, the magi, which Kelly's going to talk about next week, nobody really thought that the king of all kings, that the long-awaited Messiah would come down to earth as a baby. No one thought that. They thought he was going to come as a king. He was going to come as a powerful God demonstrating how, how supreme he is. But instead, I mean, look at her. She, she can't defend herself. There's very little she can do for herself. Right. She really wants to put something in her mouth. Here. You want to go to Dada? So I brought this one for first service. This isn't a real baby. I said I was going to start doing the mama hover. I just stand there. But this, this, is, this is how he came to earth. <laughs> no, shaking baby. No, sorry. that. Okay. So, <laughs> rein it in. Okay, I've lost. Okay, so, Jesus Christ came. I mean, think about it. Think about a newborn baby. Seriously, think about this. What can a newborn baby do for themselves? Yeah, they, they communicate. They don't have words. So they can only communicate through crying. So they can't change their own diaper. They can't tell you what's wrong if they're hurting. They can't do anything. They are completely helpless. And that's what Jesus Christ did. He left the heavenly realms and became completely helpless completely defenseless, absolutely vulnerable. And actually, he became killable 
because his own people, the people he created, ended up taking his life. There she's talking now. Jesus Christ could have come down in the clouds, which he's going to do when he returns, and he is coming back. That's his promise. He is coming back. But Jesus Christ chose to set everything aside to become a little tiny baby. In uh, January 12th of 07, there's a man named Jonathan or Joshua Bell who was a virtuoso violinist. He had a $3 million Stradivarius violin, which he took down to the Washington, D.C. metro. He put on a baseball cap and some old clothes, and he stood down in the metro during a very busy time, and for hours he sat and played these virtuosic, virtuoso, virtu, what's the word? He played songs that were pieces that were virtuoso pieces. Classical, amazing, incredibly gifted. The week before, he had played for the Boston Symphony. Sold out the entire symphony hall for tickets that started at $100. But when he was in the metro, he made $32 from 27 people that gave him money. It's just, it's like this. He was in the world, the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. In the same way that all these people walking past Joshua Bell didn't recognize his talent, didn't recognize here was a virtuoso in their midst, and they didn't recognize him. And that was what happened when Jesus came down in the form of a little tiny baby. People couldn't recognize him. They couldn't recognize that this would be a king they were just, it was a little tiny baby. Jesus was just, in their eyes, just a normal guy. Just a carpenter's son. I was telling a story first service. We, um, our first, this is kind of a funny story, and it doesn't have anything to do with my message, but it's kind of funny. Um, we went down to the Dream Center our first year, and they put on a play, and it's a pretty multi-ethnic area, and they had a, the Mary was a little Hispanic girl, and the Joseph was a black little boy, and the baby was white. And so during the play, Mary goes to hand the baby to Joseph, and he goes, that ain't my baby. <laughs> my husband turned to me, he goes, I think we need to lower our standards. <laughs> it was so cute. John 1.11, Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him who believed in his name, he gave the right to become, say this with me, children of God. Children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. This is what the gospel is. That all you have to do, it says in Romans, if you believe in your heart, or it says if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, now, this doesn't mean, you know, we come to church on Christmas and, and we get nostalgic and we think about the carols and we think about the food that we like and those songs and, and we think about, you know, the presence and our memories. For some of us, it's painful. For those of us who have lost people, it's a painful time of year. But, you know, we don't, it's so easy to lose the focus that it's really about the cross, Christmas is really about the cross because Christmas wouldn't have been a big deal 
if Jesus hadn't come to save people from their sins. And Jesus came to save people from their sins when he died on the cross. Jesus came and he lived the life that we should have lived only to die the death that we should have died. You know, Timothy Keller says the irony of the gospel is that the only way to be worthy of it is to admit that you are completely unworthy of it. Which is why we have to put off our own agenda. We have to put off our own selfishness. We put off our own ideology and we believe. That's what faith is about. It's about believing that there's something greater than ourselves. There's something beyond ourselves. We are not the end all in, in intellectual ideas or in, in the things that we, that we know. We are not the end all. There is something greater than us. So here's the plan. John 1.14, it says, The Word, remember Jesus, became flesh. Jesus became vulnerable and weak and defenseless. And he dwelt among us. This is what the Christmas message is, Emmanuel, God with us. Remember, there's the, the passage in Isaiah that talks about he's the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. But Jesus Christ ultimately is the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. He is the Emmanuel. He is the God with us. The word dwelt is really actually the word for tabernacle, which means that he set up a tent, which isn't like our little, you know, pup tents now. It's a tent, which means to cover, and it's also movable. Jesus is, he comes to dwell with us, to live with us, to be with us in our pain, to be with us in our trials and our suffering and our grief and our loss and our brokenness and our hopelessness and our sickness and our despair and our depression and our anxiety. Jesus came to sit with you, to hang out with you so that you don't have to be alone. You know, it says in Isaiah 53, he was despised, he was rejected, he was a man of sorrows and familiar with grief. You know, there's nothing like someone just coming when you're, when you're struggling or going through a hard time, having somebody just come and say, I understand, or I'm here for you, or to say nothing at all but just be there with you. It says Jesus was tempted in every way. There is nothing that any of us can go through that Jesus can't relate to. He came to his own, and yet his own didn't recognize him, but he came to dwell with us. It says, and we have seen his glory. We have seen what God is like. When, we see, when you see Jesus Christ, you see what God is like. It's the fullness of God. It says, we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. You know, there's that pendulum between grace and truth, right? Some people are grace people. Like, oh, it's okay, I forgive you. And then other people are like truth people, like 
no, that's wrong. There's, there's a pendulum somewhere in between, but Jesus came full of both. He came full of grace and full of truth. There's no flaw in him. So the word, the word, was not an abstract concept of philosophy, but a person who could be, who could be recognized, who could be seen, who could be heard, who could be touched. Jesus came as flesh and blood. You know, there's a song by Joan Osborne that's, what if God were, was one of us? Well, God was one of us, but he was still fully God. See, this is the thing that's really hard for us to reconcile in our minds. How could Jesus Christ be fully human, have all of the weaknesses, all of the flaws of humanity? Jesus didn't have any imperfections, but what I mean is like he was limited in his humanness. You know, I mean, because he was God, he, you know, maybe he could have won the long jump in his high school track meet or something, but he was fully human. He had to sleep. It says, it says that he was weary in John 4, 6. It says he groaned in John eleven thirty three. 33. He openly wept, John eleven thirty five. 35. On the cross, it says he thirsted in John 19, 28. He bled like us. He bled for our sins. His pure, perfect blood was poured out for our sins because, because we needed someone to sacrifice on our behalf so that we didn't have to pay the penalty. He came to live the life that we should have lived and then he died the death we should have died. It says that he died in John 19:30. But he rose again from the dead. The resurrection is the reason for Christmas. And you know the resurrection is the single most provable historical fact in the world. There's more evidence to prove that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead than any other historical fact. Several scholars have tried to disprove this. Several people have tried to come up with these theories and and these ideas that prove that Jesus Christ was not raised from the dead. But it's impossible to disprove it because it happened. And everything that Christians believe is rooted in that. If the resurrection didn't happen, Christmas is no big deal. It's just a baby born in a manger. Jesus Christ overcame sin and death when he went to the cross and was raised from the dead. And it says after the resurrection, he proved to Thomas that he still had a real body. He still had the scars in his hands from the nails that were driven into his hands and his feet when he was on the cross, when he died for our sins, when he died for your sins, past, present, and future, and when he died for my sins. He became a weak, vulnerable, powerless little baby to set an example for us. To see that there is nothing that we can do to earn his love. When you see see a baby, I mean a real one, not a pretend one, but pretend for now. When you see a baby and you see the love that a mother has when she looks at her baby or a daddy when he looks at their own child. That's hatred compared to how much God loves us. God loves us so much. And what does the baby do to earn 
the love of the parent. Nothing. They just are. And in the same way, God created you to have relationship with him, which is why he sent Jesus, which is why he sent Jesus as the word, the logos, so that he could communicate who God was to us. So when you read about Jesus, you know, a lot of people that, you know, they have the theories, and I'm sure you, you may have heard this, but either Jesus is a liar because he claimed to be God Almighty. So either he was a liar or he was delusional. He was crazy. Why is it all crazy people claim to be Jesus? You notice that? They're always naked and they always claim to be Jesus. I don't understand what the connection is. But so either he was a liar and he just made this up or he was crazy. He was a lunatic or he was who he said he is. And if he was who he said he is, we must respond to that. Because he said, when they asked him, you know, all of the the 633 Jewish laws, they said, what's the most important? They were trying to trip him up. The Pharisees, the religious leaders were trying to trip him up. "What's What's the most important law? And Jesus said, I'm giving you a new one. And it is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. For some of us, that's more of a challenge than for others, to love your neighbor as yourself, which means you prefer others. You put others before yourself. You care more about them than you do about your own rights. Jesus became vulnerable. He became weak, and he became killable. Colossians 1.15 says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, which is his church, He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God Almighty, the creator of the over 80 billion known galaxies, of the heavens and the earth, the creator of everything was pleased to dwell in this man called Jesus who came to earth as a baby. And it says, he came, uh, it says he was pleased to dwell through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. This is how Jesus makes peace, by his blood, which was shed on the cross for our sins. That gives us peace with God. Billy Graham wrote a book called Peace with God, talking about this concept. That the only way we can have peace with our creator is to accept the sacrifice that he offered us in the form of his son, Jesus. That's the only way. You can never, I can never, I'm talking both ways here. There is nothing we could ever do to earn his love. There's nothing we could ever, we can't, we can't offset our good deeds and our bad deeds. 
So if you think that somehow because you've done all these horrible things that now you need to do a lot of really good things, I'm here with good news. You can never do enough. (laughs) That's the good news. You can never do enough. It sounds like bad news, doesn't it? Let's imagine this. Let's imagine you have gone out and you have charged $20 trillion dollars. I don't know what you're buying, but you've charged $20 trillion. And you go to the judge and say, hey, I might need to file bankruptcy or something here. I can't pay back that $20 trillion. And the judge says, okay, well, what you're going to need to do is you're going to need to work and work and work and work and work and work until the end of your life. And then we'll get together and we'll reevaluate it. And we'll see if you've done enough. And I'll decide. That is terrible news, is it not? Because how much of a dent do you think you can take out of $20 trillion? As opposed to the fact that you go to the same, or you go to a different judge. Clearly, you want to go to a different judge. And this judge says, you know what? Somebody already came in and paid that for you. You're like, what? Yeah, Jesus Christ came and paid it all. Paid in full. That is what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you and for me. Paid in full. That is why he came to earth. Not just to live and be a good guy and kind of give some good teachings and set a good example. Yeah, he did all those things. But he came to earth, to live the life that we should have lived so that he could die the death that we should have died because we deserve death. Because it says, all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. There's not a single person who has never sinned. And if you think you've never sinned, then you sin because you're delusional. (laughs) We've all sinned, every one of us. Can you admit it? You've lied, you've lusted, you've been envious, You've gossiped, you've hated, you've competed with somebody. You may have cut someone off on the freeway. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. All of us have sinned. Every single one of us, there's only one who never sinned. And his name was Jesus Christ. And all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or in earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. John 1.16, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Going to this judge who, who says the $20 trillion has been paid, that is grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. I'm not good at math, but I like that math. You can't add anything to what Jesus already did for you. It's about responding to that, not trying to earn his love, not trying to do more so that he loves you more. He can never love you more than he loves you this second. He can reveal himself to you more, 
The more you surrender to him, the more you will come to know him. The more you know his word, the more you will know him. The more you know what it says in the Bible about what he says about himself, the more you will sense his peace and his pleasure and his joy and hope. So the true meaning of Christmas is that we too would humble ourselves, that we would admit, I can't do anything to earn God's love because God already loves me fully. He already loves me completely. If we respond to him, he will pour out his spirit and his blessings on us. Philippians 2.5 says, Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and of a baby. Being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that, read this with me, would you? At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's a story by a philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard. He tells a story of the king and the maiden. He tells the story of a, of a king who was going through the village and he saw a beautiful maiden and he, and he decided that he wanted her to become his bride. And so he was trying to figure out how to do it. And his servants or his, uh, the people that attended to him said, well, you could force her to marry you. And he said, no, but I want her to love me. And they said, well, maybe we can go down into the village and we can get her and we can bring her into the palace and we can clean her up and we can put beautiful clothing on her and she can eat the delicacies that you eat. And he's like, she would be overwhelmed by that. There's no way she could do that. So this king becomes a peasant, and he goes and he lives in the village to try to woo this young maiden to fall in love with him. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He became like us to woo us, to show us who our loving Heavenly Father is and what He is like and what He looks like. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus when He came to earth as a little tiny baby and when He lived a perfect and a sinless life and then when He gave up that life on the cross so that we could be free, so that we could live in freedom so that when we go through trials, we know there's a purpose behind it. We know that God is with us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. That we don't have to go through things by ourselves. There's a story of, a, of an orphan school, and there was a little orphan boy who, he didn't get selected to go to Christmas dinner with a family, and so he was left by himself. And there was a storm. And so this little boy crawled under the bed, and he was hiding under the bed. 
and the principal of the school was concerned for this little boy. So he went over to him and he said, can you come out? It's safe out here. You'll be okay. The little, little boy just sat there. And so then the, the principal got down on his knee and he said, there's all kinds of wonderful food out here. You should come out and, and eat some of it. And the little boy just stayed under the bed, just shook his head. And eventually the teacher got down, crawled under the bed, and just sat there with the little boy. That's what Jesus wants to do with each of us. He wants to be with us. You know, you can know a lot about God and never really know him. You can know a lot of facts. You can know a lot of things. You can go to church your whole life and not ever know him. Remember when Jesus says the story of the, of the sheep and the goats? He says, he says there are going to be those who do all these things and they say, Lord, we did this in your name. We did this. We fed the poor and, and we, we talked about you and we did all these things in your name. And Jesus will go, I didn't know you. I didn't know you. Go away from me. I didn't know you. He wants to crawl under that bed and just sit with us. In our sorrow, in our weakness, he wants to rejoice with us when we rejoice. He wants to fill our hearts with joy that, that is completely separate from our circumstances. That joy that is internal, that, is, that says that I am okay, that I have peace with God. I have peace with my maker because I have received the forgiveness that he offered through the sacrifice of his one and only son on the cross. And I just want to ask you a couple questions. I want to ask you, are you born again? Do you remember the moment when you became born again or the, the season of your life? M most people do. If, if you are in fact born of the Spirit of God, which Jesus says, without being born again, it is impossible to inherit the kingdom of heaven. You can't do enough good works. You can't buy your way into heaven. It is only through receiving the sacrifice he already offered for you. You must be born again of his spirit. If you can't think of a moment, let's do that today. Let's take care of that. If you don't know beyond a shadow of a doubt where you're going to spend eternity, God is trying to woo you today. He came to earth and became one of us to show us God, that he is God and that he wants to save you from your sins. Just like he saved me from my sins so many years ago. And I'm not saying that I don't still sin, that I don't still, but I understand that I am forgiven because of what Jesus Christ did for me on the cross. And he wants you to know that too. Tim Keller says, God's salvation doesn't come in response to a changed life. A changed life comes in response to salvation offered as a free gift. Jesus is offering you the free gift of salvation, that you can have peace with God, that you can be reconciled to your maker, 
and that you can fully surrender to him so that you can have a life that is full, an abundant life, what Jesus says. That if you lose everything for his sake, you'll have an abundant life. Anybody want that? I want that. So let's pray together. I'm going I'm to pray, and then I just want you to repeat after me. If you believe it, if you don't believe it, please don't. I don't want to make you a hypocrite. <laughs> so I'm going to pray something, and then you pray it after me, all right? Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves. I come before you, Lord, broken, helpless, unable to save myself. Lord, I recognize I need a Savior. I need to be forgiven of my sins. Lord, I confess that I've lied. I've cheated. I've gossiped. I've lusted. I've done lots of things I regret. And I know you are my only Savior. I can't do enough. I can't earn my salvation. But I thank you for your free gift. I thank you that you are full of grace and truth. Jesus, I thank you for going to the cross. I thank you for forgiving me of my sins. I surrender to you today. I receive you today. I look to you for my salvation and not to myself. And I thank you. Thank you. Thank you. In Jesus' name.